Tyler, thank you for that introduction. I, um, I'm a collector. I didn't realize you knew I collected cereal boxes. I, I have to admit it, Christmas is coming up. I collect Hallmark ornaments. <laughs> I know I probably just lost credibility with that statement, but I do, I do. Um, but it is great to be here. Thank you um, for coming. Uh, my, the title of my talk is Challenging Assumptions, Worldview at Home and at School. I want to dig into that whole concept of worldview development and the implications of that on our children. Uh, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, doing the intro, but I, this is, I've been uh, in education for 27 years, and I've been married for 27 years to my wonderful wife, uh, Maylee. We've been blessed, as Tyler said, with uh, three kids, and by the grace of God, they're walking with the Lord, and, um, and we're just so grateful for that. Uh, so begin, begin tonight, I want to define some terms. I've used challenging as both a verb and an adjective. I don't know if you caught that. I thought it was kind of clever in the title. Uh, but I want to talk about challenging as an adjective. You know, the culture in which we live um, has a lot of challenging assumptions for our kids as we seek to faithfully train them up. It's, it's hard. And the challenges uh, themselves are prevalent throughout society. So we see them in the media over and over. And I think we've always seen them in the media, but I think it's more stark now. It's more polarized now. TV, movies, news outlets. Uh, they're prevalent in the businesses we frequent with the assumptions about worldview issues coming from big tech. We read a lot about that. And nearly every major multinational company has a certain assumption behind it. There are agendas in these companies. They're embedded in the sports we watch. Who would have thought 10 or 20 years ago that the NFL or the NBA would be so agenda-driven? as they are today. Uh, they're in the commercials, the billboards we see, and the social media feeds on, on our phones. I'm not a big social media guy, but I know these polarizing messages are frequently shared to the point of assaulting us on all fronts. And our kids uh, live in this. These assumptions have the potential to just wear us all down. So the point is that the water in which we swim contains assumptions about life to which our children are exposed, and we've got to be really diligent as we address that, as we train up our kids. So second, as a verb, I want us to think about how we can best challenge these pervasive worldviews, and I thought Ben did a great job talking about that. Um, you know, I've always wondered at these kind of things, do speakers kind of coordinate with each other? Uh, and we coordinated, we called ahead of time and coordinated the haircut, so we did that. <laughs> Uh, but we don't coordinate the topics at all. But interestingly enough, I have a, a couple of those themes that he spoke to in mind as well. But hey, review is a good thing. So worldview assumptions, they have a potential to cause our own views to be derailed, often in very subtle ways. And it's often the very subtle that can lead to the assumptions, that can lead to habits. And the habits lead to actions. And then before you realize it, you realize I'm kind of in trouble here. So I want to turn to C.S. Lewis to help us flesh this out. In the Screwtape Letters, a senior devil writes advice to a junior devil. If you haven't read the Screwtape Letters, make sure you read that and make it a habit to read every year or two. Uh, so this senior devil is tasked to um, work with this junior devil, uh, Screwtape, uh, is the senior devil, and, and they're supposed to sabotage a new Christian. So the senior devil writes this. He says, do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, who in this case is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. 
Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Lewis conveys, I think, a profound thought. When we are even slightly off, when seemingly innocuous, wrong assumptions take root, the course is changed and, and the damage just compounds. Some of the most mixed up kids I've seen, 27 years in education, uh, the ones who have traveled down paths of grievous sin over time, uh, they're products of parents who were kind, in many ways really wonderful people. But they allowed these very small sins, these very small assumptions to go unchecked. And they made assumptions that impacted the way they raised their kids and the children as they got older. What seemed like very small compromises when they were young led to devastating consequences when they were old. So we must understand the pervasiveness of worldview, the difference between uh, what is biblical and what is non-biblical. Uh, the scriptures ought to dictate how we parent. And so the focus today and uh, even tomorrow will be on some of those non-biblical assumptions that have creep into our thoughts. They, it happens to all of us. And they compromise our ability to properly train and equip our, our kids. And you know, the data is not great. We read data a lot. This one uh, came from Pew Research. Four in 10 Americans between the ages of 23 and 38 now say they are religiously unaffiliated. Uh, that's the biggest drop in religiosity between generations ever recorded. So these were Christian kids who left the church. So millennials who drop out and, and don't come back. Um, so we as a group really haven't done a great job at this, inculcating in our children a worldview that allows our children to experience uh, Christian flourishing. And the Colson Center, some of you probably read uh, John Stone Street, uh, the Breakpoint articles. Um, they wrote one recently, it says, in the past, young adults who wandered away tended to become religious again when they got married and had kids. So maybe they fell away for a little bit and they kind of came back. But he said, uh, John Stone Street says, things have changed. And there seems to be three main reasons for that. First, many young adults today who leave the church never had strong religious ties to begin with, so they were never really deeply rooted. Whether their parents maybe didn't attend services regularly, maybe it was a weak church, maybe they were passed back and forth between homes. Many adults weren't raised with God or his people at the center of their lives. Maybe, the, maybe their, their, their commitment was kind of a token commitment. Second, those who drop out of church and have gotten married tend to have a spouse who is not religious. Um, I'm floored when I hear college kids, Christian kids, dating non-believers. Uh, for obvious reasons, it makes them less likely if they marry an unbeliever to uh, make the effort of going back to church and raise their families in the faith. And finally, millennial church dropouts are unlikely to view religion as a necessary part of teaching their own children morality. That's a, probably a longer story. We could spend a lot more time on that. Uh, but it's a big change from past generations, which often returned to church because they had kids and wanted them to grow up to be faithful people. They'd seen that modeled. So our goal as Christian parents is consistent with 3 John 4, uh, where he says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. So assumptions, what we may call presuppositions. They mold our way of thinking. They shape our conclusions. They uh, direct our decisions behind actions, even our attitudes. As parents, we operate from our own history and our own assumptions. The scary thing is often we don't even realize 
where they come from. We don't even recognize it. So one of our goals uh, today, tonight, will be to challenge those assumptions and encourage us to direct, perhaps redirect for some of us, our parenting approach and to ensure it aligns with the truth of the scriptures. Nancy Piercy writes in her book, Total Truth, great book on, on worldview development. She says this, to say that Christianity is the truth means that it is full-orbed worldview. The term means literally a view of the world, a biblically informed perspective on all reality. A worldview is like a mental map that tells us how to navigate the world effectively. It is the imprint of God's objective truth on our inner life. So Piercy, uh, for those who don't know, is a disciple of Francis Schaeffer who spoke about these divided lives. Christians live this, this bifurcated worldview that separates heart and mind. So this, it's a dichotomy that can be presented where some things are of the heart, some things are of the mind, and we don't necessarily need to um, match them, meld them together. So, for example, we think about different ways. How we view the private sphere and the, and the, private sphere, the public sphere. Uh, think of the politician who says his religion really doesn't affect his political views or his political life. We see it in the objective versus the subjective. Objective deals, of course, with facts and science. The subjective deals with religion and personal preferences, right? We see those things as different when they're really not in the Christian worldview. Uh, we see them in what we call the upper story and the lower story. The upper story being the non-rational, the non-cognitive things. The lower story being the rational, the verifiable, the scientific. Piercy even points to the two-story truth today, postmodernism, which, of course, is subjective, relative to particular groups, and then modernism, which is objective and universally valid. So we've got to counter that dualistic thinking, and we can do it with our kids. So I can recall, uh, I was in a Christian school. I've been in um, several different Christian schools over the years. I've worked as a teacher. I've worked as a, a middle school principal, junior high principal, and then at Providence. I've been at Providence for 16 years as secondary principal and headmaster. And I was in a school once where uh, the dean of students explained to me that the classroom was for the mind, and chapel, in this school they had chapel, chapel was for the heart. And while we can understand some of the natural implications, right, for example, uh, you know, there's going to be more of a spiritual emphasis in Bible class or in chapel, we get that, than say in pre-algebra or calculus. We, we understand that there's going to be some differences there. It was a wonderful display of this problematic separation. So we need to see all of life as God's, to believe and apply Christ's call in Luke 10, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. It's all one. Uh, if we don't take every thought captive to Christ, as Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians, then we're going to have a really tough time doing that with our, with our own children. So before we transition from assumptions uh, and worldview to the realm of education, which I'm most familiar with, I want to address maybe some reasons why we might struggle with that as parents. Why do we struggle? Uh, with even our own worldview development. Uh, why is it a challenge? So just some reasons, this is not an exhaustive list, but some reasons uh, might include, maybe we grew up, we didn't see that modeled by our own parents. Not all of us were raised by parents who were believers. Or perhaps our parents didn't have the tools or the knowledge to provide that level of training. We tend, sadly, we tend to teach how we were taught. And Breaking out of that mold or that cycle is tough. If you had a biblically grounded parent, 
then you've got this legacy, this wonderful legacy that will only help you parent your own children. Uh, but few of us had that. Not all of us had that. Uh, our own schooling impacts us. How many of us had a robust Christian education, maybe K-12? Raise your hand if you had that. Maybe a fourth of us, maybe. Um, very few of us had that. 75% of us probably were products of public school. So we were trained to think in faulty categories, whether K-12 or college. And college is super important, as Ben has spoken before about. The, those four years of college um, are wonderful worldview development opportunities for our kids, and they shape our kids in those ways. 13 years of public school uh, creates patterns of thinking. I had, to, I had a lot of unlearning to do once I um, accomplished all that damage from those 13 years and then from another four years of a, uh, a so-called Christian pagan college is what it was that I had. I won't name the college. Um, another reason, our church experiences throughout our lives have a really deep impact. Not all churches preach that full-orbed gospel. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Children's ministries are hit and miss. Sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. Uh, but all churches are consistent with what they promote, how they explicate the scriptures as it comes to training and worldview thinking. Some, courage, some uh, churches encourage the congregation's children to attend public school. I think that's a travesty. They, in effect, are encouraging dualism in their own kids. Uh, friendships play a huge role in our worldview development. I would include in that category the cultural influences that we tune into or that we uh, choose. Who we spend time with affects how we train our kids. If we hang out with unbelieving friends, for example, it would be harder for us to hold our children to biblical standards. doesn't mean you can't have unbelieving friends. It's a wonderful witness opportunity, and we can spend time with them. But I think we need to be careful. If we tend toward entertainment that forms in us unbiblical patterns of speech and behavior, that will have an effect on the standards. Do they comport with the true, the good, the beautiful? Our own sin and our own choices impact our ability to think clearly in Christian categories. Our own background contributes to our own assumptions. We may have a faulty way of thinking, perhaps an overreaction even to our own experiences that may affect how we parent. I've had conversations with parents over the years who have chosen a certain route for their kids in really nonsensical ways. Uh, but they've justified it because it's filtered through their own very limited experience or maybe through their own sin experiences, and they swing the pendulum the other way. That's tempting. And finally, just a lack of exposure. Sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. Many times I've spoken with parents who simply haven't thought through these things. It's like a light bulb comes off, and they just say, I've never really thought about that before. And again, it kind of gets back to church. It gets back, back to the, uh, the, the churches that they've attended. Uh, perhaps they're not reading the right books. Uh, the church has an effect. They've never seen that model. Uh, so a lot of reasons. There are probably more than I just mentioned. Uh, but we've all encountered truths before where it feels like our eyes are open for the first time. And isn't that great when that happens? So I hope to end with some recommendations that will help with, um, with all of us, book recommendations and, and, and uh, other things. Talk about that at the very end. So as Ben talked about, um, interesting you highlighted church and you highlighted school. And I'm going to spend just a few minutes on those things as well. Uh, one of the most important decisions parents can make for their, for their children is where they're going to send them to school. Whether homeschool, private school, public school, every child is taught within a framework. And that's what I'm going to focus uh, some of our time on tonight. There is no neutrality 
in an educational experience. Whether explicitly, implicitly, every system promotes a very distinctive worldview. Uh, includes the doctrine of God, doctrine of sin, doctrine of what is virtue, uh, what is morality, what is family, what is vocation. We're going to look at um, social justice tonight and what's behind that movement a little bit. Education is as much formation as information. Children learn through habits and attitudes and speech. They just pick this stuff up. They soak it up. Uh, the benefit of homeschool. I'm just going to quickly run through homeschool, private school, public school. Uh, I don't intend to offend anybody but I might. I think the benefits of homeschool are that a parent is pretty much in full control of their child's education. There's freedom, there's flexibility, it's wonderful. It affords parents oversight over that whole process. Um, even here though, parents may provide limited experience where their own flaws or blind spots are passed on to their children. Uh, after all, we all have weaknesses. Our weaknesses tend to be our kids' weaknesses. Having fellow Christians provide mentoring and oversight of our own children uh, has been wonderful. Sometimes other adults notice things we don't really notice, or perhaps emphasize the same things to our kids and address it in a different way that for some reason moves the needle in ways that we weren't able to do. Uh, private schools vary widely. It's incumbent upon parents to do the research, looking specifically at the statement of faith of the school, the mission of the school, the vision of the school, uh, for academic, spiritual, what does emotional development look like? One of the major flaws, I think, of Christian schools, the reality is sometimes parents put too much emphasis in the Christian school, and they feel like the Christian school and the teachers, that will accomplish what we are supposed to be doing. We're going to pass that off. We're going to delegate that, and you, and you end up with abdication. And so the school is not the family. Uh, but it's tempting for schools to either absorb that role or for parents to expect that of a school. Um, so there's danger there. Um, it can also be really easy to abdicate. I think with the school, the wrong types of, uh, types of influence as well, peer influences specifically, uh, are, are really powerful. You've read some data on that. Peers have a pretty big effect on, on, on kids. Uh, public schools are increasingly under fire for what we would view as legitimate reasons. In my view, they're untenable options for Christian parents due to a variety of factors, especially even more, probably the last five years, ten years. Uh, don't have time to fully get into that, uh, but I want to focus just on one area that we'll dig into on why the government schools are, I think, very harmful for our kids. Love the quote from J. Gresham Machen, Christianity and Liberalism. If you haven't read Christianity and Liberalism, I think it's one of the best books of the 20th century. Probably, uh, and, and that's just not my opinion. I hear that from a lot of people. Machen says this, uh, and remember, guys, this is written in 1923. 1923. When one considers why the public schools of America in many places already are, their materialism, their discouragement of any sustained intellectual effort, their encouragement of the dangerous pseudoscientific fads of experimental psychology, one can only be appalled by the thought of a commonwealth in which there is no escape from such a soul-killing system. A hundred years ago, Machen wrote that. Sounds like it could have been written today. Uh, the public schools believe in a gospel, by the way. It's a worldview. It's deeply held. It's one religious in nature with assumptions that permeate all of the thinking in the system. It's a social gospel, one that promotes the LGBTQIAS+. Honestly, I don't even know what some of those mean. I, I don't know what the last ones mean. 
Uh, CRT, it's an agenda designed to take down objective truth, religious convictions, the Judeo-Christian worldview. It despises God. It eradicates a sense of hierarchy. We're going to look specifically at some of these statements here. Uh, it reinterprets history. It reduces everything to this ideology of a multiculturalist soup where all cultures are equal. There's just so many lies integrated into that. As mentioned earlier, we need to remember that no system teaches from a philosophically neutral position. As one author says, all schools are faith-based, just like all civil institutions and churches are. It can be no other way. For all ideologies are based on certain assumptions, which can only be accepted by faith. It takes faith to believe that God created the world. It takes faith to believe that the world evolved on its own. It takes faith to believe that man is the measure of all things. It's true. So, Ephesians and Proverbs outline uh, assumptions about family, so marriage and parenting and children. Discuss those more tomorrow. Uh, but let's review a, a few key passages that I think need to inform us as believers, as Christian parents. So first of all, Ephesians 5, 22 to 27. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle in any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. My observation over, over my years in education is that the most effective parents live that, those verses out in really loving and practical ways. A husband who sacrifices and serves his family, who seeks to love his wife as Christ loved the church, who takes responsibility, absorbs responsibility for the results of a family. A wife who submits to her husband, who loves and serves her children sacrificially. None of us are going to do that perfectly. We're just not. But God is good in forgiving us. He gives us grace to carry out our responsibilities as outlined in his word. If we bristle when we read Ephesians 5, and sometimes our modern sensibilities may bristle at that when we see things like hierarchy and submission, um, that can be hard for some of us. If we do bristle, it's likely that these modern assumptions about family and marriage have impacted us, have, have, have sunk into us a little bit. But failure to adhere to these complementarian roles or uh, attempting to reinterpret the Pauline doctrine of male headship only serves as a detriment to our kids. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the paideia of the Lord. We know this commandment, but we easily forget it. A child's obedience is commanded. It's imperative for healthy family environments, as we've all learned, especially with little ones. Uh, Paul tells fathers not to provoke their children to wrath. In Colossians 3, uh, same kind of ideology says um, they're not commanded to embitter or aggravate children. The King James Version says it this way, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And that can be tempting as uh, fathers. Few things as spiritually damaging as a father who loses his temper and fails to provide firm yet loving support for the kids. Uh, third and final verse I just want to discuss briefly is Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
The Proverbs are a wealth of practical information for parents, and lest we be tempted to think of parenting as this high-stakes crapshoot, we have a promise here from God. Our efforts will be blessed. There's a mystery, I think, in the covenant. Uh, but we work and we labor and trust God for his blessing and his grace in the process as we purposely invest in our, in our kids. In light of those scriptures, let's compare and contrast that with a movement that now permeates our culture, CRT, critical race theory, and uh, Black Lives Matter. So a stark contrast of worldviews, it clashes at the most basic fundamental levels, and yet I fear that many Christians, that line can be blurred a little bit, perhaps not so much from a philosophical level, but from a pragmatic perspective. Uh, specifically, I want to look at how schools have adopted philosophies that at their core hold these assumptions nature of truth, and about how are we respond to these. So Pride Month is celebrated by uh, all public schools. I think it's probably a requirement. Uh, this is what was set in June. I, I sometimes get things from uh, parents who, who get emails. I, I'm not on the, the superintendent's email list, but I wish I was because it's, it's interesting to read this stuff. Um, but here's one for, from Pride Month. Uh, it says, during the month of June, the district uh, celebrates and recognizes pride to commemorate the Stonewall Riots, Recognize the global impact that the LGBTQIS plus community has had and advocate for actionable steps to affirm and amplify the voices of our own LGBTQIS to us community. Um, intersectionality should be, remain at the forefront of the conversations that we have around and beyond Pride Month. So for those who don't know, intersectionality, it basically identifies right, oppressive, oppressed groups, and the more oppressed groups you belong to, um, the more that you deserve, basically. The more oppressed you are, and the more you have it coming to you. That's how intersectionality works. Um, last year, many school districts adopted what they called Black Lives Matter at school. If you haven't heard of that, um, I'm going to review a couple things. It was shared from, from districts. It was unapologetic to all students and parents, these weren't secret emails. These were not things that were hidden behind, you know, superintendent firewalls or behind closed doors. These were actively promoted. And just listen to a few of the goals. Uh, one of these, and they sent these to parents, said, hey, click on the link. These are the goals. One of them is, we're committed to fostering a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking or rather the belief that in all the world, in all the world are heterosexuals unless he or she disclose otherwise. Lots of assumptions baked in there. Here's another one. We're committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Uh, the requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another and especially our children to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. And the third statement, again, there are a lot, but I'm only gonna read three. We're committed to embracing and making space for trans siblings and participate and lead. We are committed to being self-reflexive and doing the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. A lot of things built into there. Uh, I didn't even really know what cisgender was until recently. For those who don't know, it means relating to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender correspond with their birth sex. 
Carl Truman writes in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, he comments on the phrase, I am trapped, a woman trapped in a man's body, and he says this, my grandfather died in 94, 1994, less than 30 years ago, and yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing, considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today it's a sentence that many in our society regard not as only meaningful, but so significant that deny it or question it is in some way to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. Well, we need to question it. It makes no sense. And our kids need to question that. The Black Lives Matter at school program is actively and purposely promoted by, no, by most, if not all, the public schools. This may be eye-opening, surprising to some. Others may just see it as another repackaged agenda from, from the public schools. One of the emails from a local district last year had the following quote, to love all children, we must struggle together to recreate, to create schools we're taught to believe are impossible. Schools built on, and she lists four things, schools built on justice, love, joy, and anti-racism. Now, you remember that Sesame Street game, which one doesn't really fit? But, you know, when you look at that, it sounds liturgical, doesn't it? It sounds like a religious commitment. And you look at things like joy. Do we not believe in joy? Of course we believe in joy. It's the fruit of the Spirit. How about justice? How about love? And then you get to anti-racism. Why that? Why that term? Um, I, I think it should strike us as odd. But you see that, that agenda. Why is that in there? It makes for an interesting conversation. Back to worldview. Vody Bakum in his powerful book, get it if you haven't read it yet, Fault Lines, says, the anti-racist movement has many of the hallmarks of a cult, including staying close enough to the Bible to avoid immediate detection and hiding the fact that it has a new theology, a new glossary of terms that diverge ever so slightly from Christian orthodoxy. And notice those things, justice, love, joy, sounds so great, right? Then you get to anti-racism and what that, what that means. Now, again, are we anti-racist as Christians? Yeah, we don't, we don't embrace racism. Racism is a sin. But how it's, um, how it's promoted, how it's explicated, how it's driven into these programs, and what that means in other areas is really scary. Bauckham goes on to say that this new cult includes, includes its own cosmology, it's got critical theory. It's got original sin as racism. Uh, law is anti-racism. Gospel is ra racial reconciliation. It's got its own martyrs, right? George Floyd is a martyr now. Uh, it's got its own priest, the oppressed minorities. It's got theologians. It's got liturgies. It's got canons. The list goes on, but he makes a really uh, profound claim that this really is a religious system. It has all the ingredients of a cult. He also points out there's no salvation. There's only perpetual penance in an effort to cure an incurable disease. And he doubt that this new religion is the so-called uh, religion of the so-called neutral public schools. Uh, so while we must as Christians acknowledge the sin of racism, the dark history of slavery, clearly, uh, BLM at school goes far beyond that. It's an agenda that seeks to tear down the biblical family. It affirms behavior scripture deems sinful. It devalues fatherhood. Fatherhood is not mentioned. It's anti-patriarchy, right? If anything, it's mentioned in a negative light. It opposes our God-given sexuality. 
It discourages racial harmony. It plants in minds of our children that the notion of truth is relative. It's individualized. It's determined by ideologies such as critical race theory. So it's impossible to present that argument that this is a type of education is morally neutral. It's, that's been sort of this claim of government education for so many years. I think it's, it's not just difficult, it's impossible to make that claim anymore. Uh, let me read another uh, email. I had a, a parent who, who had questioned uh, the public schools. She thought, I'm going to stand up to this. I'm going to see where this gets me. So she wrote to the executive director of racial and educational justice. That's a position in the public school system. Um, the pronoun here is he, him, his, by the way. <laughs> so she articulated some of her concerns about what she um, saw as, you know, she identified her as a minority group. She's a Christian. She was, she's a, she was an Orthodox Christian. She said that's a very small group of, of uh, Christianity. And uh, don't I qualify as an under represented group. And uh, she, I can't read her whole email, but she questions lots of these things. And this is the response she got. Uh, thank you for your email. I understand your concerns of how certain topics are being discussed in the classroom. The classroom. Building principals and staff that are participating in Black Lives Matter, BLM, at School Week of Action understand the importance of all materials being taught to be age appropriate. And I don't know if you've looked at the kindergarten books that they read, they're not age appropriate. The week of action is part of the National BLM at School Week, a campaign to promote a set of national demands, interesting word, demands, based in the Black Lives Matter guiding principles that focus on improving the school experience for students of color. The days are established by those principles. And Wednesday, February 3rd, trans-affirming, queer-affirming, and empathy are one of the focus days this year. When we say black lives matter, we cannot pick which ones matter or should be talked about. In the importance of intersectionality, there's an incredible amount of diversity within the global black community and we need to teach, affirm, and talk into each of these experiences. If we're serious about addressing anti-black racism, and this point I think is one of the many points we agree on, we can never stifle our hearts to the pain or experience of others. The whole point of black lives matter at school is to show empathy and affirm the lives of all black people, disabled folks, black and undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and along the gender spectrum. It centers on those that have been marginalized. I appreciate your support and commitment to partnering with us to ensure that our systems change. Thank you. The grammar, by the way, was atrocious in this. <laughs> Not the point of this, but. So a lot of questions might come up as you read that. Again, that was just one response. It's a, it's a microcosm, I think, of a problem. And if you try to change it and you try to speak up, that's what you get. Uh, I was speaking with another parent recently who finally said no to the public school. She heard about the indoctrination in her son's classroom. She was exposed to this because of all the remote schooling. You know, one of the wonderful things about remote uh, schooling is parents could actually see and hear what's going on. She was tuning in one day last year when, uh, during remote learning when she heard the teacher say they were not going to be saying that. I'm not making this stuff up, by the way. This is not. This is all true. She said, uh, we are not saying the Pledge of Allegiance today. Instead, we want everyone to acknowledge that we're standing on stolen land. Again, no neutrality in that statement. And this is, I think, fourth grade. How does a fourth grade process that? So what do we do? 
How do we respond to all that? Is there a way to inoculate our children to these destructive worldviews? Uh, recall that data that was discussed of why young people leave the church. How do we train up our children so that they actually understand? They can, they can think through this stuff. They can spot those lies. So here are just a few suggestions in closing. So one, same as what Ben had, my number one was attend a church that preaches the gospel, has a robust liturgy and preaching. Our kids need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the good news. It's imperative that we find a Bible-believing church that equips the saints. And we have a lot of them around here. Uh, while there are some healthy Sunday school programs for children, I would encourage uh, families to stay together for worship. I think that's profound. Children learn a lot when they worship with their parents. And as a way of life, they learn to love community when they're in church. They can also be trained to practice self-control, that, that um, important uh, fruit of the Spirit. Uh, they learn their valuable part of church. Uh, think about the liturgy. How is the music affecting uh, and guiding the affections of your children? How are they challenged to think and act? Uh, do they learn the value of repentance and confession? Even as young kids, they can pick that up. They can soak that up as young people. Uh, are they valued members of the community? Of course, it's harder for three-year-olds, we get that, than a 12-year-old, but worship as a family is pretty important. Uh, again, Machen says in Christianity and Liberalism, one of the most profound quotes, the greatest menace to the Christian church today comes not from the enemies outside, but from the enemies within. So we see that even more today. Vody Bauckham's fault lines, he quotes a pastor who wrote to him secretly and said, hey, we feel it's not presently safe to disagree with certain Christian leaders on the issue of CRT uh, due to the forcefulness of their current direction. He goes on to write, the environment within evangelicalism is so hostile that it has a chilling effect. Dissent is not only unwelcome, but it's condemned. Many godly, thoughtful, well-meaning, justice-loving brethren are being silenced. We need to speak up. We need to understand this stuff. Uh, number two, find a faithful Christian school or homeschool your children. Both of those are faithful models. Again, that was uh, something that Ben mentioned. I find it interesting that we both had that at the top of our lists. Find a faithful church and find a faithful school, homeschool or faithful Christian school. As Christians, we're called to raise up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. Note the specific call to fathers. You will never see that in BLM. We must acknowledge these progressive ideologies that permeate the, uh, the public school system. So, our children deserve an education full of grace and truth. The good news of the gospel, the redemptive work of Christ. Rod Dre in the Benedict Option uh, writes this. He says, there's a good alternative to both public schools and mediocre Christian schools, classical Christian education. Sorry if that sounds cheap. Yes, I'm a headmaster at a classical Christian school. But, you know, we have, I just met someone tonight that just started up a new classical Christian school in Aberdeen. We must have 8 to 10 within a 30 to 50-mile radius in our area. It's wonderful to see uh, classical Christian schools that are teaching and equipping these young people um, how to think Christianly in partnership with Christian parents. Um, the salt and light argument, I think, is lacking. We can talk more about that later, but the salt and light argument for, for Christian education is really hard to defend. Number three, uh, read. Read. Uh, read the Bible and read other great books. We as parents should be reading through the Bible yearly, at least large portions of the Bible. There's really no excuse for us not to get through the Scriptures uh, as, as, uh, as parents, and then we want our, our kids to be reading the Scriptures as, word, uh, as well. God's Word, it convicts, it encourages, it rebukes, it sanctifies us. So establish that Bible reading expectations for your kids. 
Uh, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul wrote this. He says, I, I think this was um, um, quite some time ago, but he says, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the scriptures. R.C. Sproul. Um, we are blessed to have so many great books as well. There's a lot of great uh, references. In fact, there's a book list on the, on the table. Grab one on your way out or grab one tomorrow uh, with a lot of great books on worldview and parenting, uh, theology, culture, and education. Uh, number four, and last, finally, don't be afraid to be different. In our age, Christian families will be different, should be different. One author says, don't be afraid to be a nonconformist. I fear that sometimes we're trying so hard to be relevant that we start to look a lot like the world. We listen to the same music, we watch the same shows, we speak in the same ways, we adopt the same standards of the world. If we can instead teach our kids from the beginning that we are different, we're set apart, that matters. Um, I don't think we need to intentionally try to be weird, right? Uh, there's a strong possibility that our kids will be viewed differently, maybe be, be seen as, as being a little bit odd to an unbelieving world. Uh, but a family with different standards will stand apart. Andy Crouch writes in his little book, The TechWise Family, he says, if there's one thing our children need to hear from us over and over again, it's this. Our family is different. A Christ-centered family in today's post-Christian culture will not blend in as well as it did 50 years ago. just won't. Yes, we need to live in the world. God calls us to that, but he tells us to be unspotted by the world. The more our children can get accustomed to living in the world and not of it, the more comfortable they're going to be as they grow older to be seen as a little different, and that's okay. We need community. We need Christians. So much more to be said about how our responses um, can be seen, but that provides a good start, I think, for, for further discussion. Um, so many great resources available, including one another. Have those discussions uh, amongst yourselves. Uh, read great books, and may God be honored as we seek to, uh, by faith, uh, do that act of, of parenting. We'll talk more about that uh, tomorrow morning. So let me pray. Father, we, uh, we're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you for uh, our churches, for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, with whom we can dialogue, with whom we, um, we learn from. And Father, your grace is sufficient. You are good to your people. We acknowledge our own um, ineffectiveness, our own weakness. Uh, and yet at the same time, your spirit uh, fills us with your truth and we're able to do what in and of ourselves we're unable to do. Uh, Father, thank you for these last couple hours. We pray that um, you would bless us as we travel home and bless uh, the conference as we continue together uh, as iron sharpens iron tomorrow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.